So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. You might have noticed that I took a bit of a breather over the last couple of weeks because I was celebrating a rather big birthday and there were various trips and festivities planned which were all a great success. So now I'm 50 not out and feeling fit and strong to build a decent innings. It was also interesting to see that the show actually rose in the Apple charts while I wasn't recording new episodes. So I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or not. Maybe it's an incentive to stop more often. Anyway, if you'd like to celebrate my big 5-0 with me, then I'd be thrilled if you could nudge my previous 4.9 rating on the Apple scale to 5.0, which I think is much more fitting of a gentleman of my age. So if you can go to the Apple podcast app, if you're not listening to it already, and click on the five-star review, that would be a brilliant birthday present for me. And another reason I didn't want to record an episode last week was that I've got a cracker of an interview for you and I really wanted to be focused and fully charged to do it justice. So here we are. As you may know, my consultancy Sporting Edge aims to pull the mindset and behaviours of the world's world-class thinkers and performers so that we can share them with our clients around the world. Our digital toolkit has hundreds of powerful strategies in that helps corporate leaders to sharpen their style. And this week's guest definitely contributes to that. His insights are so inspiring. Commander David Marquet is a former US nuclear submarine captain. He served in the Navy for 28 years and is best known for the turnaround of the lowest ranked nuclear powered submarine, the USS Santa Fe, transforming it into an award winning vessel. His pioneering leadership approach converted the prevailing command and control culture to one of empowerment, fostering greater ownership and developing loads of leaders at every level. We're really fortunate that David has turned his experiences into a leadership blueprint and his Amazon number one bestseller, Turn the Ship Around, has been described as the best how-to guide for leaders looking to delegate, train and drive flawless execution by Fortune magazine. David's a globally renowned keynote speaker and runs the international programs through his leadership consultancy, Intent-Based Leadership. 
I met David recently and spent a few fascinating hours with him just exploring some of these incredible case studies that he's got and how he's turned them into practical tools. I'm sure you're going to love his story. Here's a taster of what's to come. I'm David Marquet. I used to be a submarine commander and I used to be the best command and control leader on the planet. Now these guys, they were beaten down, low morale, worst submarine. Now they got me, trained for a different ship. They were willing to try anything. We, for some reason, continuously do people disservice with, in my mind, an imprecise language. Psychological safety means I feel free to speak up and say what I really think. Senior officers would ride the submarine and they would tell me, Captain, this is the strongest culture of teamwork we've ever seen. David's insights will resonate with any leader who's looking to start a new role or reboot their team or navigate change at the moment. There's a traditional expectation that leaders and managers should know all the answers. But so much of the future is not only uncertain, but it's unknowable. So we have a choice to make. Do we blag it to try and retain our power and reputation? Embarrass people until they find the answer? Or do we show authenticity and humility and find a solution together? David's courageous leadership strategy was forced through necessity and ended up transforming the culture not only of his ship, but also his industry. Here's David explaining his story in his own words. I used to be a submarine commander and I used to be the best command and control leader on the planet. Here's my story. I grew up in the 70s in the United States. And it was sort of a depressing time. We had inflation, we had the Cold War, we, had, we were driving the Pinto, it was a terrible car. And uh, I was really passionate about liberal democracy and about this contest and that humanity should live where people had freedom, freedom to choose their religion, their spouse, their job, their gender, whatever they want. I was a geek and an introvert. I was on the math team. I was on the chess club. And I was supposed to be a scientist, but I wanted to do my part. So I went home one day, told my mom, mom, I've decided to join the military. And she was like, you get beat up. I mean, look at, look at you. And I said, no, 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 I've done this reading. I've read about these things called submarines. Submarines hide from people. That's going to be perfect for me. And my mom was like, yeah, yeah, I can see that. I went to the United States Naval, Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. They hand me this book. I had no idea what I was getting into. They hand me this book, Naval Leadership. Page one, chapter one, it says, leadership can be defined as directing the thoughts, plans, and actions of others. The thought, not just plans and actions, the thoughts, plans, and actions of others so as to obtain and command their obedience, confidence, respect, and their loyal collaboration. And you know my reaction when I read that, 17-year-old kid? I was like, get me some. Because I was one of those smart kids in school, and in this definition of leadership, I saw myself as the leader who made decisions 
And then the team was just an extension of my will and we made things happen and I was gonna be able to feel good about that. And all day long, people would come up to me, oh, Lieutenant Marquet, Commander Marquet, Captain Marquet, what are we gonna do here? And then I would say, oh, well, uh, here, we need to do this. Oh, that's so brilliant. And this is what we see in the movies. And I was good at that, scary good. And I was really invested in, in this. And I, and I viewed my job as the decision maker and the guy who leaned into the team and got the team to, to do. I did the thinking, they did the doing. It all changed and all fell apart when I had this amazing experience. I was selected to be a submarine commander, so I was very excited about that. And in the Navy, we send you to school for 12 months to learn your ship, every single detail. Why? Because the captain is the final person. The captain is the person who needs to know everything because he's the he or she now is the person who's going to tell people what to do. And we link it. The knower is the teller and the teller is the knower. And at the very last minute, there was another submarine, the USS Santa Fe. And the Santa Fe was the worst performing submarine in the fleet. She only re-enlisted three sailors out of 33 the previous year. She had poor scores on her inspections and, and she provided the fleet with an overabundance of lessons learned not to be. And we all chuckled at the expense of the Santa Fe. Oh, I'm not going there. But the captain of the Santa Fe abruptly resigned a year early and the Navy said, up, oh, Marquet, Santa Fe. And I had two weeks or Christmas holiday. I had been the guy in the Navy that was sent to places that needed help. And the, the formula was always the same. See the right answer, bludgeon the team into doing it, the performance gets better, and then their morale gets so, somewhat better. And then I leave and the team goes back to the way they were. And it's just all a big story about what a great leader I am. I show up on the Santa Fe, now I, it's the, the thing that really rocked me was it was a kind of submarine I'd never been on before. It was one of the newest ships in the fleet. And it's not the submarine I'd spent 12 months studying. So I was memorizing reactor set points, uh, drawing piping systems, drawing the cutaways of pumps, uh, memorizing procedures, which were all for a different submarine. And so I go on board, first problem, well, the problem is I don't know the, there's two problems, which is I don't know the answers, but I'm wrapped up in this whole uh, programming where I'm supposed to give, I'm the captain, I'm supposed to tell what to do. I'm here to fix it. I'm in the sonar room and I'm looking at all these buttons. This is a brand new sonar system that the Navy has bought. Now I know the theory of sonar, but I don't know this particular sonar. I don't know what all these buttons do. And I'm asking the sailors. Now, in the past, this would always be a test. Oh, the captain's asking me questions. I better pass my test. What is this? Because I would know the answer. But this time, I didn't know the answer. So it felt different. As I was asking questions, it was, it was from curiosity. And it felt different to me. I was like, oh, to tell me more what? And I finally got to this. Oh, what about this one over here? And the poor sailor was like, he kind of looks over at his chief. Uh, what am I saying now? Because he'd forgotten. 
And he, and he finally said, oh, I forgot, sorry, because you're not supposed to. And then he looked at me. And now this whole room of eight people is looking at me because this is the moment when I would tell them. But I didn't know. I had to make a decision, like pretend to know. Well, find out. Come tell me when you find out. And you really should know. <laughs> but that was, there was so much hypocrisy there. And my brain was so messed up from the fact I was walking around the submarine. It's like, okay, this is, I'm the captain, but I don't recognize all this gear. So I was just like, I had nothing to lose. I said, I don't know either. They're like, well, you're the captain. Now they knew I was trained for a different ship. They knew, of course, their captain resigned early and they knew that I was airdropped in on them. We all sort of just paused for a second, like what just happened? And then it was like a, a burden was lifted from everybody. Because now if the captain can admit he doesn't know, then the officers can admit it, then the chiefs can admit it, then every person in the organization can admit it. All learning starts from an admission I might not know. It doesn't end with, I don't know. It ends with, I don't know, let's look it up. I don't know, let's run a test. I don't know, let's run an experiment. I don't know, let's like see what actually happened. Press it, no, not this case we look it up. But we talk about, I have leaders and CEOs and people come to us, hey, we wanna create a learning organization but then they act like they know everything. They're just afraid to admit, hey, I'm not sure about this. And of course, everything with the future is not knowable. It's high, maybe some things you can predict to a high degree, but ultimately there's like 99% chance of rain, but not 100. That was number one. I admitted I didn't know. And so that really threw me outside my comfort zone. Number two was, when we went to sea, we, sh we submerged the ship, we ran an exercise where we shut down the reactor and we shift to a backup electric motor, which on all the previous submarines I'd ever served on, there was always two speeds. So think of it like first gear, second gear. And we run this drill on Santa Fe. On Santa Fe, it's, only, it's a one speed motor because as the newest ship with new designs, if you can reduce the number of gears, it's simpler, fewer moving parts, more reliable, last longer, fewer spare parts you have to carry on board. And the performance gain we gave up was negligible. So we start the drill. I'm standing in the control room. Now, the captain normally plays a relatively passive role. We watch the officers operate the submarine because they need to be able to do it without us. I'm watching the officer doing the right thing. He shifts to the electric motor, shifts the first gear, conserving energy, because that's what you would do on the two gear submarines. And I'm and I was like, oh, we're gonna make it hard. Because if we shift to second gear, it drains the battery faster, puts a lot more pressure on the team to fix the problem with the reactor before the battery runs out, because then you're toast. So I suggest to him, not in order, <laughs> I say, hey, Bill. Why don't we go to second gear? We'll give the engineers something to think about. And he orders it, boom. Second gear on the electric motor. And the sailor just sits there. And he's kind of, his shoulders kind of go like this. And I'm standing kind of behind him. And I see that and like, hey, what's going on? And he says, Captain on the Santa Fe, there is no second gear. It's a one-speed motor. I'm laughing. I shouldn't be laughing. It was the most humiliating, embarrassing moment of my life, because I was there, I was the big guy, I was there to fix them. And I make this 
unbelievably basic error, which propagates through the system. Light bulb. I didn't actually order it, Bill did. I'd look at Bill. Hey, Bill, do you know about this? Yes, sir, I did. He gives me this weird, <laughs> I'm like, Bill, riddle me this. If you knew there was no second gear, why'd you order second gear? Because you told me to. We all know that's what he said. Of course that's what he said. It's always what people say. It's what the engineers said at Volkswagen. It's what the people said at Boeing when they launched 737 MAX with the flight test pilots knowing the thing was super squirrely in the, in the flight testing. It's what they say at Wells Fargo. It's what it, over and over and over again. It's what the train engineer on the Greek train crash says. I was told to do it. It's the telling people what to do that absolves them of thinking and responsibility. And we build those organizations and we're in charge of them. And then, we, and then we're sad because, oh, where's the thinking? Why do I feel like I'm the only one taking ownership? Where's the responsibility? Yeah, you killed it by the way you designed the organization. Every time you tell them people what to do, give them a card that says, don't bother thinking, I'll do the thinking for you. And that's the fundamental structure. Now we inherited from the Industrial Revolution, which was a different time. People were doing manual labor and only a small proportion of society was literate or heavens forbid had gone to college. Now, in most societies, the literacy rate is very high. People can have different levels of education, but the intelligence is spread throughout. But we still have these structures where it's like, no, we'll make the decisions for you and you execute what, what you're told. And this is the most harmful thing. I got my guys together and I said, hey, we got a big problem. I was trained to do, I was trained to tell people what to do. You're trained to do what you're told. I don't know the submarine. That's a formula for us all and we talked about it, I wanted to give the regular lecture. The regular lecture on empowerment, which sounds like this, and you, everyone's heard it, you're empowered, you be proactive, you take initiative, you speak up. What's the key word? You, you're the one who's all messed up, your behavior needs to change, my behavior's good, I'm not gonna do anything different, but you're gonna change your behavior. This is hypocrisy again, it's laziness and hypocrisy. It doesn't make any difference. If I'm empowering, if I say, oh, you, I empower you, it's like, it sounds like you're empowered, not me, because you can unempower me. So I resisted that doing that. And we talked about it. And I said, well, the only way for me not to give a bad order, because if I give an order, I'm going to force you to, to in the awkward position of telling me I'm wrong. So the only way to get out of it is if I never give an order. And I was like, what do you guys think? Now these guys, they were, they were beaten down, low morale, worst submarine. Now they got me, trained for a different ship. They were willing to try anything. So like, well, we don't know what it looks like, never seen it, never heard about it, but we'll try it. I said, so here's the deal. When you come to me, don't say, tell me what to do. Don't even say, I'd like permission. Because if you say, captain, like permission, request permission to submerge the ship. And I say, submerge the ship. I'm still ordering it. And then you could say later, well, you, you, you ordered it, which would be true. They said, just come and tell me what you intend to do. Say, Captain, I su intend to submerge the ship. Now, the first time that happened, I had a lot of questions on my head. Normally, we had, we'd check. 
Hey, all personnel below, the hatches are shut. That's key. <laughs> we checked how much water we have below us and all these kind of things. So, so it's, it's technically, is it safe? And then the second thing is, well, why are we like, why did you choose to submerge? How does that support the mission? So these are these are two lines of quest questioning, which we now call the technical part, the technical competence. Prove, prove your competence. And then organizational clarity, why are we doing it? And so the officers very quickly learn, oh, I'm, I'm gonna, he's gonna ask you these questions, so you might as well just tell them. So the captain intended to submerge the ship. Here's everything that we've checked, make sure it's safe. And here's why. Now we're having real conversations because I'm not twisting or anchoring them. They don't know what the quote right answer is. I'm understanding their thinking. I'm, I'm learning little technical bits about the ship, but more importantly in the long run was I under, started to understand how they were thinking about connecting their actions to the submarine's mission. And many times it turned out I, there was stuff in my head, like I, like I, I could see from we were getting a set of orders and we had a set of water and I could see that what the Navy was trying to do, what, what they were going to do with us two or three days from now. I think, I, I'd say, oh, they're setting us up for like a missile strike. But the team, uh, just because they didn't have as much experience, might not know that. But I wouldn't say it. For some reason, it would just stay in my head. And then I said, why are you doing this? We're going to go do a missile strike. Like, what, really? Yeah. And so I had to learn how to be better at giving intent, not instructions. And they would learn, they learned to be better at telling me their intentions, not what they wanted permission to do. So this is a unique and fascinating situation. Imagine being in that position with all the stripes on your shoulder and maybe the big hat and hundreds of years of command and control behind you, but you don't know the answer. What makes this worse is that he's stuck not knowing the answer as they submerge below the ocean waves for two months at a time. There's no place to hide. So this is where David's intent-based leadership was born. You tell me what you intend to do, what you've considered and why it's important to the mission. And that not only builds clarity and alignment, but it also demonstrates the competence of the crew to make the right decisions. This is exactly what many of my corporate clients are wrestling with at the moment. They want to create a more agile, empowered workforce, but they're gripped by fear and holding both the information and control at the top table. So there's a big disconnect between what they want and the culture they're actually developing. So I wanted to find out how this empowerment actually happens when you're still the one who's ultimately responsible for the ship being safe. And David's story brought it to life beautifully. So... I wanted to, I wanted people to be empowered. I wanted them to tell me what they were doing, but I still found myself uh, interjecting and jumping in. For example, we were driving the submarine into port 
and you have to turn at a certain point and I'd be looking and I'd know a turn is coming up and the officer would be standing there with a microphone and he's ready to order the turn at any moment. We're in like a narrow channel, so it's important to turn kind of just right within a few seconds. And I would I don't, because I don't know that he or she's about to say it. So I kind of jump in, hey, uh, weapons, weps, the weapons off, weps, are you about to, you're going to, yes, I'm turning. And he's kind of miffed. So I said, well, you tell me like what you're thinking. I don't know that you're, so then, then they learn to say, Captain, I'm about, I'm going to announce a turn in 30 seconds, turn in 10 seconds, nine, eight, three, two, one, mark, you know, like helm. And uh, it works, it works great because now I can be quiet. It's, it's an act of empowerment. I was teaching my daughter how to drive and I noticed the exact same thing was going on. I was sitting in the past, she was driving. I would see like the family playing in the, in the driveway. And I'd be like, Emily, do you see the, like I would try and wait, but she wouldn't say anything because we don't normally talk when we're driving. I say, Emily, do you see the, see the family? I see the family, dad. I mean, so she would be miffed. But I say, well, again, it's you're not speaking. I blame, <laughs> blame the victim maybe, but I was like, you're not speaking. Therefore I feel compelled. So when, so she would say, I see the family, I see the car, I see the lights turning red. And you don't need to do this all the time. I mean, try it when you're driving. It's, it's a practice thinking out loud. Just vocalize what you're doing as you're doing it. And it is a true act of empowerment because um, then your, your boss and the team knows what's going on and they're less likely to step in and squash your dreams. Now, I hope that thousands of my clients around the world use this video in their team meetings, and it's a great way to emphasize the two-way nature of communication that's needed. But even if they don't, it's done one powerful thing, and that's helped me with my own daughter's driving lessons, because I can definitely tell you that that works. Thinking out loud or communicating more could be the best way to join remote workers in this current hybrid or virtual world. Regular, explicit, proactive reporting and communication is the very best way to alleviate stressful interjections and to maintain calm awareness and that rhythm of what the team is doing as you move through an important project. And in a fast-paced, dynamic environment, even if we don't have nuclear warheads in the next room to us, we need precise language to give the clarity and ownership that everybody needs to move forward. We, for some reason, continuously do people disservice with, in my mind, an imprecise language. Uh, so what we say for boundaries are you want wide but high walls. You don't want them to be ambiguous about, well, can I go to here, here, here? Where's my, where, can I order this? Can I do this? Can I, what can I do? You don't want that. There was a study, there are fences at school play yards. This is some municipality. And someone said, oh, fences are bad. They took down the fences. What, with the fences, the kids could play right up to the fence. They took the whole yard. They took the fences down, the kids ended up playing sort of in the middle because they didn't know where it went from safe to unsafe. And without the fences, humans will be more defensive. They, they are more risk adverse. 
which is what we think, oh, we're giving them boundaries to go out, but it's not, if it's a true boundary, be really clear what it is. When it comes to imprecise language, for example, I think we use we too much. We use we when I mean you. Hey, we should clean that mess up. Like, you didn't mean we. Are you going to do it? You meant me. Uh, we use we when we meant I. Hey, we're going to make this decision. No, we're not. I'm making the decision. And actually, when we say, oh, we're in this together, so that scares people to say, this, this is your call. I own this decision, but I need your help to make it. Oh, understanding who owns the decision is really important. And what happens is it scares people. And so it doesn't feel safe. So it, do not do global replace I for we. It doesn't, there's some place where we is better, but it's not always better. Use the right language. I can definitely relate to this on a personal level. I don't like shouting instructions and giving precise direction, but having listened to this, I can see how being nice and seeming to make things slightly softer just adds to the confusion. People want to do a great job at work, but that means they need to know exactly what you need from them so that they can judge whether it's worked or not. And we need this to be done by this time. And it feels more commanding, but actually it stops them from worrying or overworking on things which could have been part of that woolly brief. David shared another great strategy for helping people to feel comfortable challenging the decisions or questioning the status quo, which is so important to navigating uncertain times. Clearly, they were operating in an incredibly high stakes environment, but the principle he describes next could foster more contribution and a feeling of psychological safety in any of our teams. Psychological safety means I feel free to speak up and say what I really think. I'm not going to play some game. Oh, well, the boss really wants to do that. So that's what I'm going to say. There's an environment of psychological safety means we use a language which is non-binary. So for example, if you come up and say, hey, I think I think we might be shooting the wrong target. And, and it's binary like that. And I say, are you sure that's binary? Then people are gonna be reticent to say, I think we're gonna shoot the wrong target because you better be really, really 99.9% .9 sure or 100% sure that it's true before you say it. So things that are only like just a small probability, uh, we don't say them. So we practiced adding a probability. When we got to the thing, when we got to the point, we got the description, hey, we have a new sonar contact, it's on this bearing, it's this far away. It sounds like this, sounds like a submarine, 85%. We, once we got to those interpretations, we would add a probability because the probability is the thing that lets you say, hey, I think it might rain tomorrow, it's only 10%. But if it does, it's really going to have an impact on our operation. I think you're wrong, 5%. I think this course of action that we're about to do is not appropriate. I'm only 2% sure, but if we're wrong, we're going to kill the wrong people. 
So it's the probability that makes it safe. Small and choice and adding the probability. The other thing that makes it safe is small and choice. I can really see how adding this percentage to the comment when you're raising concerns or a challenge allows you to do it in a much more subtle way compared to that binary judgment of stop this or start this. And that nuance of why something is 60% or 80% gives that chance for debate and questions and to gain more perspective before the key decisions are made. But ultimately, we need to make better and faster decisions in any environment, whether it's on the football pitch, across our factories or in our uh, offices. So what we need is our performers that are empowered to be able to make decisions from them for themselves rather than look over the shoulders, wondering if they're going to be micromanaged. So David explains how the relationship between information and authority is the key thing in enabling decision making at every level. All hierarchies have a characteristic which separates authority from information. So what happens is the people at the top have the authority to make bigger and bigger decisions. People at the bottom, like the person standing at the front desk of the hotel or uh, operating the machinery or out on the playing field or flying the airplane, they have the information. They have the most nuanced information about what is going on, but they don't have the authority to make certain decisions. So we create systems and we buy software, which then aggregates what people know and we push information we're trying to close this gap between information and authority. We push information up and then someone who's 5,000 miles away makes a decision and it comes back down. Okay, do this. Uh, that holds us back in multiple ways. Number one, the people feel disconnected from their actions because they didn't make a decision. That's probably the biggest thing. Number two is there's a delay. Number three is there's distortion in the message because the intermediate bureaucrats change and filter and massage the message, whatever it happens to be. So we don't, we shouldn't be surprised when uh, certain examples of, well, didn't someone in the corporation know that was a problem? Yeah, of course they did, but didn't. So the answer is to do the opposite, to push the authority for making decisions, push it, and it's hard, down to the people with the information. So that, I'm not saying that the tool operator at a Tesla factory can decide, oh, well, we are gonna make airplanes now. Uh, everyone's bounded in terms of their, abil their uh, um, ability to make decisions, but give that person as much authority, maybe like how, how long is the shift or how frequently do we ma do maintenance on the machine or which way do I stand or how do I just elect? I can't tell you, there was a story here in uh, London or outside of London I have a friend who takes the train in and one day he showed up and he's, oh, there's an automated ticket booth. But it was in a really awkward location um, where you couldn't really see it. And the ticket, he knew, he knew it was the ticket master who'd been there for 20 years. He said, and he asked him, hey, well, why, did you, why did you let him put it here? And he's like, are you kidding me? They didn't ask me. Why, why would we ask the person who's been there for 20 years what the best place, where the best place is to put the, of course not. So, over and over and over again, we get to see examples where someone thinks they know better and they're not even asking the people who actually have nuanced information about how the crowds flow every day. So push authority, P-A-T-I. Don't channel information to authority. 
push authority to where the information lives. So we all need to hear what our ticket masters think because they're the ones that are on the platform with our customers every day. We can see aggregated data if we want to from every station across Europe, but sometimes local context is king. We all need great decision makers in our teams across our business, whatever industry we're in. Maybe it's the cyclists in the peloton knowing when to make a breakaway, or it's one of our retail staff knowing when to offer a discount on a faulty purchase. We have to let go of control and empower to give away some of the power to those closest to the action. And this story illustrates the point perfectly. One of the things we get to do is we bring the SEAL teams to where they need to go. They don't like to live with us on the submarine because there's no gym and their athletic, lean, muscly bodies deteriorate, <laughs> atrophy. So we pick them up at the last minute. We have to surface the ship, which makes us vulnerable. vulnerable. We don't like it. And then we go on deck. And so I'm up in the, the fin and I have one of my chiefs at the main hatch. And then we send the sailor all the way back and the helicopter comes and it's hovering over the submarine. We're moving together. They drop a line and the person's got to grab it. And then the SEAL team comes down very quickly and we, we, we talk about all the things that could go wrong. Uh, the wind shifts and the wave, com wave comes or someone slips and they break their leg or they bounce and land in the ocean. What are we gonna do? And then of course, the thing that happens is the one thing that you forgot, you didn't ever imagine what happened, who knows. Now, the way I was taught leadership was leaders make decisions. So that person would, call the captain and say, hey, I got a problem, which I do about it. It's a problem I haven't encountered, which I do about it. It doesn't work because things are happening too fast. It's too noisy with the helicopter there. And we're, I'm sitting on the fin. I can't even see where the, the action. All I can see is the helicopter and then a line and then a, a little bit of the, of the deck way at the far end of the submarine. But where all the action, I can't even see it. You want me to decide? This is exactly what we do. Oh, let's send an email to Washington, D.C. and let them tell us what we should do out in, in you know, Taiwan. It doesn't work. So you need a team that sees what needs to be done, states what, that they're about to do it, gives a moment for feedback, and then they do it. And, we, and we're all better. They're better, the organization's better, I'm better off as a leader. Now again, you might not have the Navy SEALs abseiling into your office this morning, but think about the times when you've been asked to make decisions when you don't have full visibility of the whole context. Maybe it's the customer complaint or the supplier's relationship that's been tested through a price increase. It's often the people closest to the front line that know all of that context. So let's give them a range of actions to take and some space to make those decisions and trust them to make the right call. One of the questions I was itching to ask David was about conflict on the submarines. Imagine months under the sea with people who are pissing you off and there's no escape. A couple of hour car trip with teenagers is bad enough. 
I remember Dave Brailsford in his interview talking about how the way somebody held their knife and fork could spark conflict on day 10 of the Tour de France when everyone's so tired and cranky. So imagine living under this water, under the pressure cooker, with no night and no day cycles. Here's David's response to that question around managing conflict. On the Santa Fe, we went to sea with 135 or 140 people. We had 117 beds. So I've got guys sharing a bed, not at the same time. One person be on duty, the person they just kind of swap like this. It's very intimate. It's very tight, very close quarter. You're bumping into people. Um, you're waiting for somebody in the, you know, to get out of the shower so you can take a shower. It's, it's, we go to sea, we leave home port for six months. Uh, and we might be underwater as many as two or three months at a time. People get tired. People rub each other the wrong way. We have a couple, two, two, couple kinds of conflict, um, good and bad. Bad conflict is just sort of personality thing. And, and I would just, I just wouldn't tolerate it. Like, well, how do you not talk? Well, someone comes to me, oh, I think my boss is a jerk. I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. And so so you get, what are you gonna do about it? Like nothing, now go back to work. It's like, you work it out. Just don't have um, a conflict with them. We Like, what do you want me to do? We're not gonna send you out in the middle of the ocean. So, and it sounds like a weirdly not caring approach, but the submarine will either sink and everyone will die or it'll come back and we'll all, we'll all gonna live. And that hard truth trumps a lot of this conflict stuff. The second kind of conflict which we had was good conflict. And that was when you, you would say, oh, we really need to turn left. And I would think, oh, we really need to turn right. And I had a hard time really understanding how to manage this for a while. But here's what I learned. First of all, we need a structure for running meetings where I hear both opinions and both people get to argue their opinion. And we hear the people who have the most extreme views. If the people with the most extreme views realize, oh, I'm an outlier and they don't want to speak up, then I would have the group come up with, with a reason why that person was right. If we had two people that were just not, couldn't agree on something, I would send them out and make them argue the other person's perspective when they came back. And it's really just a secret to get, it's just a trick to get them to listen to each other. And they would come back, well, this is a stupid idea. It's like, stop, you have to represent it as if you believe it. I, you don't have to believe it. Now that's respect, because a lot of companies talk about, oh, you know, we respect, blah, 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 blah. They don't, this is the way they practice. And, it bundles up with trust. I think we do ourselves a disservice with the way we think about trust. Trust in many places, trust when I first got to the submarine meant, I believe that you're trying to do the right thing and you are doing the right thing. So we had a situation where we were fixing a thing on the reactor plant and there was a panel with a little, uh, there's a, there was a, piece of equipment, we had reactor controls equipment. So these are all the wires and circuitry that control when the reactor should shut down. 
And there was a little panel that was access panel, it was open and a sailor had his hands in there and he was um, replacing a switch. And I, and I let it, like I'd stay out of the way and stay up in my stateroom. And, but then I'd like go back every once in a while. Hey, how's it going? And, uh, oh, good, Captain. I think we we're just tightening, you know, tightening up a few last bolts here. Okay, good. Can I see? Well, do you trust me? And this was the reaction. And the idea that the boss wanting to see what you're doing is a vote of no trust. And it really bothered me because I said, well, of course I trust you. Your hands wouldn't be on the controls of the reactor if we didn't trust you. But it doesn't mean that what you're doing is right and or I can't learn from the thing. So we had to decouple trust. That second part was, are we doing the right thing? So trust only meant you're trying to do the right thing. That's all it meant. And if you said, hey, I think we should turn left, I trust that you believe that is exactly the right thing to do. It does not mean it is the right thing to do. So we could have a knockdown, drag out, yelling, throwing pencils at the wall argument about turning left and right. And then when the decision was made, so if maybe, maybe I would make, as a captain, make that decision, uh, there were no hard feelings because it wasn't wrapped up in trust. It was simply, I read, you read the situation one way, someone else read the situation a different way. We went your way, we went their way, whatever. But I still believe that you wanted to do the right thing. So trust means simply, I, I'm trying to do the right thing. And if we can have knockdown, drag out fights about what to do, separate from the emotional part of trust, we'll have more honest conversations, we'll make better decisions. It's interesting to think how personal conflict can be dissipated by focusing on the shared goal of success that we're all in, in together for or the shared consequence of failing. Now, for David and his submariners, those polar extremes were life and death. But for us, we could divert an argument by saying, OK, it's not about me and you. What does the client need? Well, yes, we disagree, but what does the business need us to do next? That bigger shared goal can pull people out of their own self-interest and refocus on that bigger picture. Equally, David's perspective-taking exercise I thought was quite interesting, where conflicting parties had to actually consume and present their protagonist viewpoint. And that would definitely grow awareness and calm things down. And ultimately, the officers and sailors were there to do a job and to do the right thing. And trust was essential. But when we're under pressure and that shared goal and vision isn't visible and talked about a lot and central to every day's work, we get that feeling that we want to blame others and protect our ego and our competence. And that can be a real barrier to high performing teams and making that next step up to creating a high performing organization as every department or sub team burrows down into their own important projects and feels the pressure to deliver their own local results. It's easy to see how silos develop and get maintained. It's us versus them. And we're almost competing with each other for resources, time and attention. Well, David's frustration with this attitude on the underperforming Santa Fe led to another transformational moment, as he now explains. 
I've never met a CEO who came and said, told me, hey, help me build more silo <laughs> organization. We, every organization universally wants broader collaboration uh, horizontally across the organization. When I got to Santa Fe, we had what I call a lot of days. We had days by hierarchy. We had days by departments, operations, engineering, maintenance. Uh, it hit me in the head one day. We were doing running a fire drill. And at the end, and I, we had stopwatches. We were measuring our performance. We didn't do so well. And so, hey, what happened? We had like sort of the retrospective. And I, I heard this word, they. Well, they didn't do this and they didn't do that. They didn't pressurize the fire hose and they didn't change the batteries and blah, blah. And finally, like on a submarine, we're like sleeping. We're sharing bunks, some of us. And someone said they to someone who was like in the bunk with them. <laughs> I'm like, how can that be they? And I just lost my cool. I was like, there's no they on Santa Fe. And I pounded on the table because I was just so upset with this they. And then I thought, I was like, oh, that's good. It rhymes. So people, people remembered it. And, and I now know from studies that humans actually believe things that rhyme more than other things. So the next day I'm standing in the control room and the engineer has a problem with one of his pumps and the supply department isn't, doesn't have the part he needs. So he comes up to me. And so I'm in the, so I'm in the, I would just kind of hang out in the control room. The officer would be coming up to me, talking to me all throughout the day and the ship would be operating. And so these are semi-public conversations. And the engineer is like, uh, yeah, I can't fix the pump captain because, um, <laughs> we don't have the right, we don't have the right part. And I just bust out laughing. And he's just walking backwards like this. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't a big problem. We had backups in this particular case, but over the next six months, this we started taking over. And senior officers would ride the submarine and they would tell me, Captain, this is the strongest culture of teamwork we've ever seen. Now in the military, there's some pretty strong cultures of teamwork. And I, I never talked about culture. It's too complicated for me. I, and I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, well, we do have a rule that you can't say the word they. And I think now that what happened is by the repeated use of the word we, our brains actually grew differently. We means in my tribe, I collaborate with you, I trust you. They means not in my tribe, I compete with you and I don't trust you. And so when you say we, it, it means this person's in my tribe. And then your brain grows the connection so that they feel like that person's in my tribe. That's such a brilliant story. There's no they in the Santa Fe. Now, maybe your company rhymes with that, so you can just steal it. But if it doesn't, maybe you'll have to share the clip. I think we've used about eight of David's insights for today's podcast, but there's another 15 or 18 at least inside our digital toolkit, which many small, medium and global brands will be using to spark fresh thinking and performance conversations in their own teams and try and replicate this intent-based leadership. You can get a month's free access by visiting sportingedge.com and looking at the Members Club. And as you sign up and create your account, 
just put in podcast 100 to the discount box at checkout to activate your free month. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode with Commander David Marquet. Make sure you check out his company, Intent-Based Leadership, and his best-selling book, Turn the Ship Around. It's a brilliant read. I'll add the links to the show notes. His courage and authenticity to find a better way to lead is truly inspirational. And I hope that if you found yourself barking orders and trying to control things in these turbulent times, then it'll give you a fresh perspective to drive high performance. An approach that not only delivers results, but also sustains them beyond our time with the team because it fosters that self-awareness, those better decisions and that personal accountability that comes from the team rather than one all-knowing iconic boss that when they leave, the whole system falls apart. So David's story, I think, is a brilliant high-performance story and who doesn't want that in their organisation? As ever, if I can help in any way with your conference events or facilitating a Leadership Away Day or some digital content, then just drop me a note through to hello at sportingedge.com. I'd be thrilled to help. And if you've enjoyed the show, then please leave that one time big 5-0 birthday rating on Apple and share the link in your social channels. And hopefully we can inspire hundreds of leaders around the world with David's story. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.